Welcome in, everybody, to the first episode of the Dynamic Dialogues podcast. I'm your host, Danny Matranga, and today I want to introduce you to this podcast as a whole, as this is, in fact, the inaugural episode, what you can expect from me, what you can expect from me on this platform, as well as answer some of your questions in the first Q&A episode of the podcast. Now, before we get going, I need to apologize really quickly. If you can tell, you might be able to listen in and hear I'm a little bit congested. Um, we've had a pressure system roll in, it's a little bit rainy, allergies have been kind of running rampant, you know, hopefully it's that and I don't have the coronavirus and I'm just going to drop dead any minute now, but if that is the case, it was nice knowing you and enjoy the only episode you'll ever get of this podcast. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Now, so let's talk about the name, Dynamic Dialogues. If you've been following me for any considerable amount of time, probably greater than three years, which I know many of you probably have, you'll remember that initially, before I went to just being a self-titled Instagram, I was actually Dynamic Danny for a little while. And the term dynamic has always been something I've quite liked, as it's indicative of constant change, activity, and progress. And I think with fitness and anything we do for our health, progress is good. But the focus of this podcast isn't exclusively fitness. So I didn't want to make it the Dynamic Fitness Podcast, the Dynamic Danny Fitness Podcast, Danny Matranga's podcast about fitness. I wanted to make it a podcast about things that will help you create dynamic change in your life. And most of this will be fitness and health related. But as I kind of break down what my emphasis will be moving forward, you'll see there'll be lots of opportunity for you to grow in a lot of areas if, of course, you subscribe and stay tuned to the coming episodes. So the primary types of episodes you can expect from the Dynamic Dialogue podcast will be singular topic, long form discussions between myself and you, the listener, where I talk about things that are, I think, integral to health, performance, nutrition, and wellness. That could be everything from breaking down supplements to talking about certain training modalities to talking about certain muscle groups, how to develop them, certain nutritional therapies, nutritional uh, approaches, all types of unique and fun stuff. Um, I'll also be doing a lot of Q&As where I field questions from you guys on other platforms like YouTube, the podcast itself, or of course, Instagram, uh, as well as interviewing some of my friends in the industry. Now, I have the absolute pleasure of having some incredible relationships with people in this industry who are absolutely brilliant. People who are experts in everything ranging from sports performance to female health. I want to connect you with those people. I wouldn't be doing my job as a fitness professional and somebody who wants to create a brand around educating people if I didn't leverage these relationships and introduce you to these people who I learn from, who I think are brilliant, and let them share their expertise as well as share their stories. I think too many fitness podcasts focus exclusively on the nuts and bolts. And I would love if I could find a way to connect you with these individuals as not just experts in their field, but also individuals, people, and humans who I think are really fucking cool. So you can expect quite a bit of that in interview-based podcasts, as well as the occasional freestyle podcast where I just talk about whatever I want, and it'll be kind of random. Um, but those will be the types of episodes you can expect. Now, I wanted to do a Q&A for the first episode because I think that answering some of these questions that I get in longer form really helps me leverage this platform to the best of its capability. 
If you've seen me on YouTube, you probably know that long form content is somewhat of an expertise of mine. I'm quite good at it. I enjoy it, but I'm really limited in how long form I can get with that platform as well as Instagram, which is the primary platform that I use. I consider those platforms that are predominantly leverageable for things like width. And when I say width, I mean, they're very broad reaching. They can reach a lot of people on a lot of different levels about a lot of different things. And podcasts are a platform that I've always thought were really good for driving content that has depth. So obviously Instagram and Facebook and and Twitter and uh, YouTube have more width, but podcasts give you a little more depth. They give me the opportunity to really reach you guys on an intellectual level educate and create relationships with listeners and create a place where you can come to get that content delivered and get a little bit more depth, a little bit more expertise and a little bit more information. And so that's why we're going to start today with a with a Q&A episode where I go through some of the questions you guys and asked on Instagram on Wednesday of last week. So the first question is from DJ T Mox and he asks are multivitamins good or bad? And do you need to take the fully recommended dose on the label? I like this question twofold. There's two really good questions within this one. So let's first break down the first part, which is, are multivitamins good or bad? Now, from a purely supplement-based standpoint, as far as you know, the industry as a whole goes, I think that more multivitamins are good than bad. I think there's a lot of garbage supplements out there, but of the supplements available to the general population that people choose to purchase, I think that multivitamins are one of the good guys, if you will. Now, the literature, the research, the data doesn't show that they have a ton of effectively long-term benefits. There's actually even data that shows that people who take multivitamins have worse long-term health that I've seen, but that's correlative data that's not always causation. So, What I think we might be seeing there is people who have poor health already trying to utilize multivitamins as a way to mask that. But I think in practice, from a purely functional and technical standpoint, a multivitamin supplement is actually very worth taking. I consider it somewhat of an insurance policy. And what I mean by that is you keep it around, you take it, and hopefully you don't always need it. You don't always need those extra micronutrients, but hey, on the days that your hopefully healthy diet doesn't cover all of your bases and you might be a little bit deficient in this vitamin and maybe that mineral, hopefully your multivitamin can step up to the plate, ensure you a little bit, cover your bases. And they're generally quite affordable, so as far as supplements go, it's an insurance policy I consider worth having. Now, In terms of can they be bad, I think we have to look immediately to something like vitamin toxicity levels. Now, when we talk about vitamin toxicity, we were primarily looking at vitamins A, D, E, and K. The reason for that is they're fat soluble. They don't get peed out like vitamins B and C. If you have a lot of vitamin B and C, particularly vitamin B, you'll notice the color of your urine will change. It will become bright yellow or even orange um, from the buildup of those excessive water-soluble vitamins, and our body just liquidates them by going to the bathroom, which tends to be how we excrete a lot of things. But too many of the fat-soluble vitamins can cause vitamin toxicity. But thankfully, when most supplement companies design multivitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K are typically below 100% RDI or close to it. So toxicity level doesn't tend to be an issue for most people. 
brings me to the second part of this question, which is, do you need to take the fully recommended dose of a multivitamin every single day? And this would, of course, be the recommended dose on the label. Now, my opinion on this might be a little bit different from other healthcare, uh, or I should say health and fitness professionals, and that's that I actually do not believe you need to take the fully recommended dose. Um, Here's why. I think that most people who take multivitamins probably make an effort to eat somewhat of a healthful diet. And if you're eating mostly whole foods that are rich in plant and animal matter, you're probably getting a lot of vitamins and minerals anyway. And while you might not be 100% RDI on everything, you might not be hitting on all cylinders, most multivitamins are designed so that a full dose covers most of the RDI for vitamins A, D, E, K, B, and C, as well as quite a few minerals and nutrients. So if your diet's already solid and your multivitamin says, hey, you need to take eight capsules to hit one serving, I generally will have clients take four under the assumption that, hey, this spreads it out. It makes it a little bit more affordable of a supplement. You can get twice as many servings out of one bottle. Additionally, you're letting your diet kind of run here instead of running the multivitamin as your primary means of getting nutrients and you, you get to spread things out. So I don't think for most multivitamin supplements, you need to take the entire dose on the label. However, if your diet is completely trash and you don't eat a lot of very healthful foods, um, it certainly would not hurt to take the entire dose. But I do not believe it to be a necessity in any way, shape, or form. So second question comes from at Miles Hawes, and he asks, lots of cardio for a race. I'm also cutting. If I meet my protein goals, can I prevent atrophy? So yes and no. Here's why yes. Protein is perhaps the most muscle sparing nutrient you can eat for most people. There's certain contexts where carbohydrates quite muscle sparing, but as far as macronutrients go, nothing's going to impact your ability to maintain muscle like getting adequate protein intake. For people who are active, we might need to bump that beyond the range for we, for general population people to somewhere around like 0.7 to 1 grams per pound of body weight. So have you had you had a, a relatively stable base of resistance training and um, a solid amount of muscle, picking up cardiorespiratory exercise like running or training for a race so, and, and you know making sure your protein intake is adequate, so long as you do some type of resistance training you should be able to stave off and prevent the majority of the atrophy that's going to occur. But we got to talk about how the body's responds or how the body responds to different types of exercises. So to become a truly elite distance runner, it's probably deleterious or negatively impactful to have a ton of muscle. So your body over time is probably going to lose some of that, particularly as you work to increase mileage. Now, are there people who run long distance races with impressive physiques? Certainly. But the best runners in the world, distance runners in the world, tend to be smaller because to perform at the highest level, having all that extra muscle isn't beneficial. So if you're somebody who really wants to do this at the highest level, atrophy might be something that's actually required for you to reach the pinnacle. Now, if you're just a weekend warrior type and you're running a 5K and you want to run a little bit better or faster time, I don't think that you're going to need to drop a lot of muscle. So as far as cutting goes, um, you're going to lose muscle on a cut almost always. Um, and obviously picking up distance running, cutting at the same time are probably not the best recipe for maintaining muscle mass. 
but doing some type of resistance training paired with adequate protein intake should help you out quite a bit. And I think if you look at the general population of people who run, not all of them look like Kenyan marathon runners. That's a meme that's kind of gone around the fitness industry for far too long, which is that if you do any type of cardiovascular exercise whatsoever, you're going to immediately become this emaciated marathon runner physique that you really just want to look like a sprinter. So you should only ever sprint or run very short distances because those guys are ripped. And that's a physiology like deep dive for another day. But it's absolutely okay to run. If you get protein, you keep your lifting going, you should be just fine. All right. Next question is from at Julius Lupu. Julius asks what to do if you get sick on your program. So there's a few things that I think need to be done if you get sick in the middle of a resistance training program. The first is you need to establish just how sick am I? So if you're dealing with something that's exclusive to your head, like what I'm dealing with right now, you have mild to moderate congestion, it might be okay to get some type of training going. But if this is the type of cold or bug or flu that's descended into the lungs and the upper respiratory tract, you're putting yourself at risk as well as the other people in the facility you train at for getting a pretty serious bug. So determine the severity of the illness. If it's a light cold, probably keep pushing with a little bit of trepidation. But if it's pretty serious illness, the number one thing you need to do is rest. Now, if you do rest, if you're, say, five weeks into an eight-week program and you take week five off, I wouldn't recommend picking up at week six. Instead, what I would do is I would redo week five. I would pick up where you left off, and I might even incorporate a mini deload because having worked with a lot of clientele, particularly some who are older, one of the things you'll realize is that even though you're not experiencing the symptoms of the illness anymore, perhaps the congestion subsided, perhaps the cough has subsided, maybe the body aches are gone, you feel ready to come back and bounce back, your body might be a little bit behind. You might not be as prepped or as ready as you had initially thought, which can be somewhat problematic for those looking to get the most out of their performance, particularly if you're in the middle of a program. And if it's percentage-based or you have RPEs or RIRs, it might be really hard to pick up where you left off. So incorporating a small deload might be better. So say it's an eight-week program. If by week five you get sick, it might take you 10 weeks to finish it to the best of your ability because you might need to take a little deload or reacclimation week followed by repeating the week in which you got sick and then finishing strong. But the number one thing to do absolutely under all circumstances is to do everything you can to minimize stress, upregulate your intake, right? Get more micronutrient dense material, plants, vegetables, fruits, even healthy meats and things that will give your body what it needs to fight off a cold, get lots and lots of sleep, and depending, like I said, on the severity of the issue, don't be afraid to step away. Your gains are going to be there for you, and pounding through it while you're sick is only going to extend the duration or the amount of time it takes for you to bounce back. So here is the next question. This one is from at Kyle Grangs, and Kyle asks, do you have an inspiration to do what you do and how do you find it? So first things first, when it comes to being inspired to do what I do, we have to talk about what it is that I actually do. So if you follow me on Instagram, you might think I'm just your traditional run-of-the-mill online coach or Instagram personality, if you will. 
I actually still train one-on-one clients, which is not a common thing that people who want to make a name for themselves on social media do. In fact, it's actually quite rare at all to find real in-person coaches in the online world. Part of the reason for this is they're quite busy training real people and actual clients. And many of the people who you see on Instagram or YouTube that have large followings or spend a ton of time making content don't actually train people. They spend all of their time making content. Well, that's not really how I do things. I still train a lot of one-on-one clients. In fact, I'm usually in the gym from either 5 to 6 a.m. to 2 to 3 in the afternoon training clients straight through back to back to back. I do that because I quite enjoy it. I value the relationships and I really appreciate that people trust me enough to help them work through a variety of physical issues, whether it's losing weight, pain management, or simply aging properly. Maybe it's increasing athletic performance or preparing for a season. That's a journey I've always enjoyed being a part of, so that's a huge part of my life. Now, in addition to that, I operate an online coaching business where I train 12 to 15 clients max at any given time. The reason I cap it at 12 to 15 is I found it's not in the best interest of the client for a coach to have a ton of clients all at once. And this is something that many online coaches do. They take on more clients than they can handle and they end up getting a bit cookie cutter, which is unfortunate because the only person who really suffers there is the client who thinks they're getting more out of the relationship than they might be. But I have to find a little bit of inspiration to kind of drive myself to stay that active because again, managing a full-time in-person schedule, 12 to 15 online clients, producing content for YouTube, Instagram, as well as generating blog content, podcast content, writing free guides, all the different things that I do, it takes a toll. And I can see why you might be asking where I get inspiration from, how do I find the energy to do this stuff? And the first thing I would say is it actually doesn't come entirely from a place of inspiration and motivation. You'll probably notice that I don't post a ton of inspirational, motivational content on my page. I do from time to time, but I wouldn't call myself a hashtag motivation Monday type. I'm actually more of a realist and a lot of what I do comes from fear. Um, growing up, I had a pretty rocky relationship with my mom and it kind of produced some insecurities. It kind of produced some issues that down the line um, led to a pretty rough road from the age of about 13 to 20, where I was trying to find myself, make my way as a professional and paid for basically everything I did from the age of about 15 on. So a lot of that inspiration is actually, or what you might interpret as inspiration, is actually just me pushing because for many years I had to just to keep my head above water. And you become a very driven person when you're exposed to those types of circumstances, those sink or swim circumstances. And I've never really let that go. And one of the things I actually struggle with is being able to just relax, to step away and say, hey, you know, this drive to work, you can take a little break from that. You don't have to be anxious about not working. And I can see that people would probably from the outside go, man, that guy's so motivated. He must constantly be inspired to work and always on the go to produce content and train clients. But realistically, um, as in all of the ways that the driven nature I have or that fear-based thing helps It also sabotages a lot of my ability to relax and unwind. So I think these are things that I work through personally, but um, 
I wouldn't call it inspiration. It's part of who I am and it's part of how I do things. And for all the pros, there's also cons. So to, to hone in on a motivation or a driving force, um, I really truly like helping people especially with health and fitness, I feel like it is a calling of mine and I feel like it's part of the reason why I'm here and I enjoy sharing that. But a lot of that drive and that push comes from um, not always the best place and that's part of being human and I think that's totally okay. But that's one of the things I want to share is, you know, from the outside looking in, it might just be like I'm sitting in the lab all day making as much content as possible and I'm super, super motivated, which is the case from time to time, but a lot of it is a desire to help people change and a somewhat anxious energy to produce, produce, produce out of fear of going back to times where things perhaps weren't as good, which isn't always as healthy. So next question, I don't have a username here, but it's how to train for a specific sport and are imbalances necessary? So when we talk about sports-specific training, it becomes really important that we balance the different things athletes need to work on. And that would, of course, be skills training or position-specific training, recovery, and strength and conditioning. So let's use basketball as an example because it seems to be a very popular sport. And we have to work on skills training to be good at basketball. It might be perhaps the most skilled sport out there. You have to be a competent passer, dribbler, and shooter to succeed at the NBA level. And those are all skills that take a tremendous amount of work and they take a toll on your recovery. You also have to learn systems, plays, and how to play well with other people, which requires simply playing the game beyond just working on skills. And then in addition to that, you have to have a certain level of strength and conditioning. So that's three types of training you would have to do to be a high-level basketball player. Individual skills training, team-specific training, and strength and conditioning. That is an awful lot to do, and it's an awful lot to balance with recovery. So from the jump, to train for a specific sport, you need to find the balance between skills training, strength and conditioning, and team-based work. Now, in addition to this, um, and diving deeper into the recovery piece, one of the things most athletes miss is nutrition, especially younger athletes. But I'm, I have a few people in my circle that train or coach athletes at the highest level of professional sport, whether that be players in the NFL, players in the NBA, or they coach for teams. These are people that you would know the people they work with. That's all I'm going to say. And one of the most astounding things that I've always just marveled over is how poor the nutrition uh, aspect these guys have or how, how poorly they understand nutrition despite playing at the highest level in their respective sport. Like it's crazy to imagine that a player as dominant as some of these guys are, some of these guys are all-stars, not going to name drop, but they're very, very high caliber players and they're barely scratching the surface of proper nutrition. And so for younger athletes or people just looking to get the most out of their performance who maybe aren't as genetically gifted as some of these players, Nutrition is something that you can do to really assist in your recovery, stress management, allostatic load, all that stuff. Dialing in your nutrition is big. So if you're a coach, a sports-specific coach, strength and conditioning coach, youth athlete, whoever you might be, I can't impress upon you the importance of using nutrition as a tool and not looking at it like a um, kind of something you have to do, but something you get to do to increase your performance. So let's address the second part of this question about muscle imbalances. So are muscle imbalances necessary? 
Are they a kind of inherent part of sport? And the answer is yes. So even sports that we might look at as being slightly more symmetrical, like basketball or football, those players have imbalances and they have imbalances that they've created over years and years of playing the game that probably contribute more to their success than they do to their failure. Where we need to look at imbalances perhaps is less so on the court and more so in the strength and conditioning world. Um, if we see mechanical problems or, or things that might create an increased risk of injury in the weight room, it's in our best interest to step in as coaches and change that or make adjustments or coach, literally coach, correct, explain and make these athletes understand why this stuff is important. But the example I always go back to of coaches not staying in their lane is Markel Fultz. Now, Markel Fultz is the NBA's number one overall pick in 2018, I believe. And he came into the league, actually, I think it was 17. He came into the league with a bunch of really talented college players like Lonzo Ball, Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, some studs, some absolute studs who are all perennial all-stars. And Markel Fultz went number one in that draft because he was a physical ball-dominant point guard who could dribble, shoot, pass, and he was quick and he could defend. And those players are pretty hard to come by. But one problem that came around with Markel Fultz and his coaching staff was people wanted to adjust the way he trained and the way he shot. Now, you see this a lot with baseball, but if you get to the bigs and you can hit, my philosophy is you can fucking hit. And there's no reason to change the swing that got you all the way there. You might make some tweaks, but you don't change the whole swing. And you had a coaching staff in Philadelphia where Markel ended up that thought, we need to change the way Markel shoots and we need to do some specific training to correct this stuff. And Markel spent almost the entirety of his rookie year on the bench dealing with thoracic outlet syndrome, which extended from the training the staff was doing to try to correct imbalances that Markel had. And that damn near ruined his career. He's now in Orlando. He's been traded and he's trying to work his way back to getting meaningful minutes in the NBA while some of the other guys who were drafted behind him because they have less talent are already all-stars and they're already excelling simply because somebody didn't come around and fuck with what made him good in the first place. So coaches, identifying imbalances is important, but it has to be context dependent and we should never, ever, ever make adjustments to skill-based stuff that's helped these athletes get to where they've gotten if the athlete's not on board with it too. Because we have to give athletes autonomy. And, and even if you don't train athletes, maybe you just train general population clients, you need to make decisions for these clients that they're on board with. You have to explain things. And I think if you had told Markel Fultz, hey, Markel, we're going to train you in such a way that we can balance stuff out. We're going to change your shot. Um, he would have been a little apprehensive. And that created some problems for the kid. And it's a bit of an issue. And then you have sports, for example, like baseball, tennis, lacrosse, where rotation is a big deal. You have separate implements like bats and rackets and, and sticks. Um, and that requires an entirely different set of training because all of that rotating, throwing, and swinging certainly creates imbalances. But those imbalances are why these players can do what they do at such a high level. If you had a pitcher who can reach back and hit 100 miles per hour by just going into freakish external rotation and then freakish internal rotation on one side, you know, we wouldn't need to 
fix the imbalance between the pitching hand and the non-pitching hand. We just have to understand that it's there and it's part of what allows this player to do what they do. We don't have to train one side of the body more than the other. Again, we just have to focus on maintenance, allowing this athlete to do what it is that they do best and train them intelligently. So Muscle imbalances are a really sexy thing. People ask about them. A lot of trainers like to flex and act like they can fix people because they understand overactive, underactive musculature, biomechanics, this and that. And I think that's important. All that I'm saying is we need to be very, very careful with this stuff when we're training athletes or particularly training individuals who have a sport or physical demand that might be reliant on some degree of imbalance. We all have imbalances and it's totally okay. So last question here is from Coach M. Cruz and Coach M. Cruz asks, what is vital to ensure you're adding value to online clients? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what I do, but I'm also going to talk about some industry practices, best practices, and what I believe to be poor practices that perhaps other coaches can learn from if you're a coach listening to this, or if you're a client looking for a coach, what you should be on the lookout for. So the first thing you can do as an online coach to add value to any client you're going to work with is to be honest about what you deliver as a coach. And what I mean by that is really be forthcoming about what you're willing to do for this person. If you're not willing to communicate with people regularly, don't tell them you're going to do regular check-ins. If you're not willing to be available via text, don't be available via text. Make sure that the expectations are there. They're laid out thoroughly. A lot of coaches will do and say things to get people to enroll in a coaching program, but they don't always follow through, and that can be somewhat problematic. The second thing is have a very thorough intake process, and don't be afraid to turn people away. What I mean by that is perhaps you have an intake form or an intake questionnaire or even an intake phone call. I have all three and it acts as kind of a safety net. What it does is it prevents me from working with people who I think would be a better fit for other coaches or other situations and it protects potential clients from working with me if we're not going to be a good fit. Um, If you just work with everybody that walks right through that door and you think I'm the best trainer for every person in every situation, you're probably letting your hubris and your ego run away with things. I know a lot of trainers who know a lot less than I do about things, but that would be a much better fit for some of the clients who apply for coaching with me. And the reason for that is a big part of coaching is understanding people, understanding personalities, and understanding what they need. And if somebody's an expert or has a better vibe with them, it might be a better option to refer them to that person than to force the issue with them on your own. Another thing you can do that really adds value is gather data. So I use two types of interfaces to allow clients to gather data. They can either use an app in which their workouts are uploaded and I can gather volume, intensities, and things like that, or old just fashioned pen and paper where I send you a PDF with all your stuff and I give you plenty of space to write into it. And that can be a really valuable tool for helping clients better understand what it is that they're expected to do in the gym. And it gives them a little opportunity to track and log their own data. So that's very, very, very important. Another thing you can do, and this is something that I'm big on in my coaching business and a lot of coaches aren't, is communicate often. Uh, As somebody who's actually worked with clients in person, which I can say many online coaches have not, and I don't think that's a very good uh, approach to working with people's health, but you know, I'm not here to judge what people want to do to make money. If you choose to communicate infrequently with clients, 
you're missing the opportunity to educate. You're missing the opportunity to let them know you're there to support them. You're missing the opportunity to recreate what would normally be the coaching process, right? In person, you're there talking to clients. You're there coaching clients. There's no replacement for in-person coaching. There never will be. But if an online coach can try to recreate that environment and that space for their client, they're probably going to help their client a lot more than if they don't communicate or they only do weekly check-ins. Weekly check-ins is something that really bothers me in the fitness space. Excuse me. It's become really popular to only check in with clients once a week via email. And I think if you're too busy to check in with clients once a week via email, maybe you do a couple check-ins during the week. I'm not saying you have to give everybody your phone number and let them blow you up 24-7. But what I'm saying is if your clients have to come to you with 30 questions on Sunday, um, you know, and you check in with them for a 20-minute Skype call, or you email them back in quick short form or a voice memo, I think you're missing a lot of the opportunity to educate clients and recreate an in-person environment where they can see success and get instant feedback. So being dynamic with how often you communicate, being available, and trying to recreate the in-person coaching uh, experience, if you will, is a really, really big thing you can do. Another way to add value is to just simply explain things. When you make a nutritional change, explain why. When you add an extra week to strength-based programming instead of changing to a different stimulus, explain why. When you change the stimulus in your training program, explain why. When a client says this exercise hurts and you give them an exercise to substitute, explain why. You know, it doesn't seem like rocket science when I say it, but I am shocked at how many online coaches simply demand or tell, but they never coach and they don't teach. So doing that can be really, really important. Another thing you can do is ask, what can I do to support you? What can I do to help you? Simply getting a check-in and seeing that the macros are good and that the training is good and sending back, hey, good job, that works from time to time. But every once in a while, you might want to drop something and they're like, hey, this is really good, looks awesome, thanks for checking in. Is there anything you need from me that I can do to support you? That's a way of letting your client know you're there, you're along for the journey, and you're there to support them on their health, fitness, or performance goals. Um, And the last one is simply not to be afraid to empower your clients to make their own decisions. All coaching, whether it's in person or online, should be driven towards self-sufficiency. I have a lot of clients who work with me because they enjoy it, but I wouldn't say they need it. I don't think they need it because I think they know enough. And we go back and forth. I empower them to make their decisions or empower them to be involved in the decision-making process. And they choose to stay because they enjoy coaching. But if you're empowering people to make decisions and educating them and doing all these things, eventually they'll go off on their own. And that should be the goal. Because even as a coach, working with new clients can be exciting. And there's nothing better. Excuse me. Sorry about the congestion. There's nothing better than seeing a client take off and excel on their own. It's very, very exciting. And while it might be scary to some coaches, it's actually quite fun and enjoyable to see. And that is the last question for today's episode. Now, before I let you go, I have one favor to ask. First, let me say this. 
Thank you so much for listening. You have a lot of different podcasts you could listen to and a lot of different content on platforms you could consume. But you taking the time to listen to this podcast makes a huge difference to me, and I hope that you found some value in it. I'm excited to continue to add value moving forward, and I know that the show will grow and evolve as I grow and evolve on the platform, but you guys being along for the ride is really important to me, and I want to continue to serve you and continue to add value to your life. That being said, I want to let you in on a little giveaway. So, anybody who leaves a five-star review for the podcast, subscribes, takes a screenshot and tags me on Instagram is going to be entered to the, into a chance to win a free program of their choosing from my site, either foundations, which is my four day a week total body program that focuses on stability, strength, stamina, and hypertrophy, or my female physique program, which is your more typical, um, hypertrophy program designed to help women develop their shoulders, upper back, glutes, and hamstrings. So, very simple. Subscribe to the show, leave me a five-star review, and then just take a screenshot of this episode on whatever platform you're listening to on whatever device, share it to your story, and tag me. If you do all of those things, you'll be entered into a chance to win a program, and I'm going to give 10 away for free. So there's a very good chance you'll win simply by participating. And again, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. I hope it added value and I can guarantee moving forward as I polish things up and become better at using this platform, I'll be able to add even more value. So thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of the Dynamic Dialogues podcast and I'll touch base with you soon. Have an amazing rest of your day.